Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. All right, welcome back, everyone, to another great episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. Today, we are interviewing Libertarian Vice Presidential Candidate Spike Cohen, running with Dr. Joe Jorgensen as the LP's presidential ticket. He promotes a vision of common sense libertarian solutions that he and Joe say will make us all more free, safe, and prosperous. Spike Cohen started a a web design company about 20 years ago in 1999, and he retired from that a couple years ago to start promoting libertarian ideas full time. And his aim is to make people more familiar with what he calls voluntary solutions and property rights, clearly a big part of the platform of the Libertarian Party. He's the host of My Fellow Americans, the co-host of Muddied Waters of Freedom and the co-owner of Muddied Waters Media. All these platforms reach millions with his message. And he co-hosts two live programs every week, interacting with countless people across the political spectrum. This experience has convinced him more than ever that Democrats and Republicans have both failed the American people. Spike Cohen is hoping to work with uh, Dr. Joe Jorgensen to end wars, free uh, innocent people who've been imprisoned wrongly, and end infringements that impede uh, what he calls voluntary problem solving. Spike Cohen brings over 20 years of experience in leadership positions to complement Dr. Jorgensen's own background and academic experience. So we'll be bringing Spike on in just a second here, asking him about all the most pressing issues that the country's facing right now, from police violence to systemic racism to the economy to healthcare, and of course, the coronavirus. Spike, thank you so much for joining us. We're so excited to have you on the show. Hey, uh, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. I always enjoy these opportunities to do as many of these podcasts as I can. So when you're, yeah, and, and, you know, we'll be linking to a few of them that we did some research on beforehand that we really liked. So people can kind of learn, learn even more than just in the maybe hour that we get together. Um, cool. What's, what's so exciting about this, of course, is that, you know, we're, we get to talk to someone who's thinking seriously about, hey, when I'm in, you know, the West Wing, how am I going to be dealing with some of these issues? Right, um, exactly. And, and so you, you were thinking about it from a perspective that's so different from how we normally do, or, you know, citizens normally do. And so, and, and obviously as a libertarian, you're going to be taking a wildly unconventional approach to a lot of this stuff uh, that, that we're excited to get into. And, and I want to start with, I want to start with the big one right now, right? We are okay. recording on Juneteenth, celebrating the final liberation of, of slaves in America. 
And, you know, this, this comes off the back of, of course, George Floyd and all, all the stuff that we've talked about. And, uh, you know, the Republicans and Democrats are sort of howling at each other about what, whether to do anything or what to do about police violence against citizens, against the press, and in particular against black citizens. What is your and Joe's position on that? So first of all, I mean, obviously, there are many issues there. Uh, like you mentioned, Juneteenth, I'm actually headed to a Juneteenth event later today. For those who don't know the whole history of Juneteenth, Juneteenth, uh, in a nutshell, is when the word of emancipation finally made its way to uh, slaves in Texas. And it wasn't because it took that long for them to get there. It was because they took their sweet time in doing so. And even in the official proclamation, it warned them to not be lazy. Now, I, I just want you to keep in mind that uh, people who for 400 or for over 300 years uh, or 200 and some odd years had been enslaved and forced to work under threat of harm. The first thing they were told, having been set free, is don't idle about and be lazy. Hmm. This is the way that the American government and the prevailing American system has treated African-Americans in this country from the moment they got here. They have been treated as cattle, and their actions have been compared to those of animals because it, it, it was part of an underlying way of treating them as less than in order to justify treating them in such an inhumane way, a way that we would never be able to acknowledge as being an okay way to treat people. But if we could call them something just less than people, then we could treat them that way. And those who also, you know, poor whites who didn't benefit from their slavery and actually were harmed by their slavery because they weren't being hired for anything and they lived in destitution, if they were told that, well, at least you're better than, you know, black people, African-Americans, mm -hmm. that made them feel superior even in their destitution and their exploitation at the hands of, very, of a very small handful of very wealthy and powerful people. Totally different from what we have now, of course, today. Here's here's uh, I was being sarcastic. Yeah. By the way. So here it's so just something that it's like now. it's hard to laugh at because like I know you're being sarcastic, but this is like heavy, heavy stuff. It's, it's it's what we're dealing with right now. Yeah. So there are obvious problems with the way that policing is being done in this country. The war on drugs and and the increasing use of police uh, of of the police forces as revenue collectors for minor petty offenses. Those two things alone have contributed to a massive rift between the public in general, and especially marginalized communities, but really the public in general and police departments, because we are increasingly not looking at police as someone that's there to protect our lives and our rights and our property. And we're increasingly looking at them as someone who's coming to hassle us for some reason. And that changes how we view the police. That changes how all of us look at the police. And of course, for communities of color and other marginalized communities, that's how they've always seen the police. Mm. They recognize that our modern policing force, forces are actually born out of the slave patrols from the eight that started in the 1830s. Uh, and they recognize that that is still a continuing overseer role that they have in there, especially in the poor uh, marginalized uh, communities of color that they have today. So we have problems like that. We have problems like the militarization that has happened, which is really just an extension of the military industrial complex, extending itself into domestic policing by dropping military surplus equipment, and then giving probably even worse than the actual equipment itself, then sending contractors to teach the police how to use military equipment that was designed for high-level military battles overseas. 
which changes the entire mentality of how police are being trained because they're increasingly being trained on how to use breaching equipment and mine resistant vehicles and body armor and grenade launchers and all of these other things, which you can't then pivot and say, okay, now let's talk de-escalation. So that's a major problem. Uh, Civil asset forfeiture, which is a federal program that the states carry out where the the government steals uh, from people who have been accused of a crime before trial. And then if by, if by some miracle they're still found not guilty or the charges are dropped, even though they aren't able to afford an attorney because everything's been stolen from them to pay for their prosecution, they then have to go and sue the government to get their own stuff back. That would have to end. Uh, and I know we're, we're focusing first on the problems and not the solutions, but mm. these are the things that contribute overall to policing. When it goes to communities of color, we have all sorts of problems there. We have an implicit bias that is in police departments that is uh, treating uh, African-Americans as inherently more dangerous than everyone else and other marginalized communities as well. We have the fact that uh, we, uh, because of the, the programs that happened in the, in the mid to late 20th century that, that herded uh, people of color uh, into large urban areas, which then have the most high concentrations of policing, there's just a natural over-policing that's happening as a result of that. And then we have the fact that the police in general and uh, all of the levers of power are typically weighted against those with the least. So if you're a poor, homeless white person, you're getting a pretty bad experience from that as well. And unfortunately, because of the history of how African-Americans were brought here in chains, their labor stolen from them for dozens of generations, and then, quote unquote, set free, told they couldn't own firearms to defend themselves against the Klan. And then from then on, basically treated like second class citizens until very, very, very recently where they're told, OK, you largely have equal rights. Now get over everything that happened before this. Most African-Americans disproportionately are in lower, uh, l- lower rungs of the economic spectrum and have much less ownership and wealth. And so naturally, as a result of that, so you have implicit bias, institutional racism, over-policing of urban communities, and you have just the general disdain that people in power uh, have for those who, who have less. And that's going to disproportionately affect communities of color as well. So all of those things contribute to not just the, the, the way that police are treating African-Americans and, and, and communities of color and marginalized communities, but just how the state is in general, because the police are just one of the, the arms of the state. So there's clearly a lot of issues tied up in in all of this, right? And yes. I and I yes. think that for folks who are maybe a little less familiar with the history, what you just said about how much the modern policing system is built out of both the slave patrols in the 1830s and also some of the policing institutions that are set up in Reconstruction, that may not be familiar to a lot of folks. But for, right, for, right, right. for something that's that, this widespread and this built into the system, and really all over the country, we find the, these dynamics, what's the libertarian approach to solving these problems? Well, specific to policing, at the federal level, there's a lot that can be done. First of all, there is something right now, a libertarian congressman, Justin Amash, has introduced a bill to end qualified immunity. And I could spend an hour talking about what qualified immunity is and why it needs to end. And I've done multiple videos about it and all sorts of stuff. The bottom line is that qualified immunity is a legal doctrine, a terrible legal, legal doctrine that was initially introduced in the 1960s, basically to uh, allow and empower police and, and state officials, government officials to brutalize civil rights protesters. That was the original purpose of it. And basically what qualified immunity says, and, and with each new decision 
that strengthens qualified immunity, this, this doctrine gets even worse. But the basis of it is that police cannot be held uh, legally uh, or civilly liable, uh, not just police, but uh, any government official. Uh, so politicians, uh, medical uh, officials, uh, and, and, and police cannot be held liable for uh, abusive actions that they take that violate the rights uh, of, of the community, of others, as long as they determine that what they did was reasonably uh, necessary over the course of their, of their duties. Imagine being able to walk into court and say, Your Honor, I know I've been accused of this crime, but I think what I did was perf- perfectly reasonable. And the judge drops all the charges because you said that. That's qualified immunity. And it's actually way worse than that. With each decision, it's gotten worse and worse and worse. They actually now say that even if the judge, even if the, the courts determine that you were, you could not have possibly thought that that was reasonable, unless someone else has already set precedent of doing that exact same thing in that exact same jurisdiction, you still get qualified immunity. So there are many examples of that. One recent example is where two Tennessee police uh, sicked, uh, sicked their canine officer on someone who was already detained and he was brutally bitten multiple times. Ugh. And they determined that they were qualified, they had qualified immunity, even though that exact same thing had already happened in that same jurisdiction, because in the first case, the person was lying on their side. And in this case, the suspect was sitting up. I mean, that's how, how exact it has to be. So qualified immunity absolutely needs to end. So when you see Democrats kneeling with Kinty cloths on and, uh, and Donald Trump talking about dominating the streets and, and signing worthless executive orders that talk about retraining bad cops not to murder people who are unarmed, uh, all of that is just, that's just lip service and performative nonsense that isn't going to fix anything. Ending qualified immunity will go a long way towards not just disincentivizing bad policing, but incentivizing good policing. Because if you stop your fellow officer from doing something that is obviously bad and abusive, now you aren't going to be held civilly liable. That alone will be a powerful way in stopping a lot of this, not just for communities of color, but for everyone. Uh, ending the civil asset forfeiture program that I was talking about before, um, which is a big part of the defunding the police effort. We need to federally defund the incentivization of creating a massive, punitive, and militarized police state. Ending the military surplus program that Joe Biden co-authored and Donald Trump has uh, both Obama and Trump uh, gleefully carried out. Uh, ending that, we need to stop militarizing the police. The, the, these are not front lines. These are our communities, and these are not enemy combatants. These are our friends and neighbors and loved ones. Um, and um, ending, uh, also using the Department of Justice as a department of actual justice, using the Department of Justice to go after abusive police and uh, abusive uh, government agencies that have a history of abuse and abusive uh, police departments that have a history of uh, disproportionate treatment and abuse, using the federal government as a means of enforcing our constitutionally affirmed rights while also cutting off the trough of crony friendly money that slush fund money that's being sent down to further militarize the police. We also need to end, many people don't know this, but a lot of states have quotas for a minimum number of people that must be in their prison. And some of those states have a minimum increase to that quota every year. So they actually can't introduce laws like ending the war on drugs, which we would also do. They can't do that because it would set people free and it would violate their contract with private contractors, for-profit contractors that are listed on the stock market whose only job is to facilitate the contracting of prison labor. 
chattel slavery never ended. It was just taken out of the hands of the private sector. And there is now a multi-billion dollar industry built around essentially enslaving people for victimless commerce, putting them in prison for engaging in commerce that had no victim, and then using their free labor for decades and then letting them out with fines, with interest on them and a a, a felony record, ensuring that they can't ever get ahead legally and basically ensuring that they'll end up right back in prison doing free prison labor until they die. All of these things will end under a Jorgensen Cohen administration. So let me ask you a follow-up question about the private jailing industry. I I watched this documentary recently, which I highly recommend to folks. It's called The 13th Amendment or something like that. Yeah, And it kind of covers a lot of what you just talked about at at a high level uh, for folks who may not be familiar with it. But Mm -hmm. the idea is the 13th Amendment basically makes slavery illegal aside from people who are imprisoned and their rights are taken away. And in the last three decades or so, we have seen this growth in private sector uh, prisons and affiliated services. So oftentimes, the libertarian approach is to decrease the amount of or or decrease the level of government involvement in in different industries. So, Mm -hmm. and I think uh, a lot of people might say, okay, well, uh, what about this industry? You might call this a free market where they're competing for... Yeah, that's not a free market. This is the government creating patronism and then allowing, I don't even like calling them private sector. If your only client is the government, you're not private sector, you're for profit. The government has created a system of cronyism that allows them, the government, to profit on the backs of others, which is what they did for the, you know, for they've been doing for 400 years and even before the existence of the USA uh, on the backs largely of African-Americans. Uh, but now on really on everyone's backs who who ends up in jail on a, on a drug charge or on some other victimless crime charge. And as a result, people who want to make a profit off of that step in and serve that need. An actual free market where the government wasn't going in and infringing on market demand for the services that those people were providing before they were thrown in prison would have never created this system. An actual free market would never say, you know what an efficient way of using labor is? Let's lock 20 million people in prison and then put the, take them out uh, of that prison, uh, let's use you know have them do you know toil manual labor. Some of these people are geniuses, but let's have them do manual labor for you know where they make pennies a day and we make you know uh, slightly more than minimum wage per worker. And then let's take them back out and put a, a permanent mark on their record so that they can't get ahead in life and they become a, a, a ward of the state until they almost inevitably end up back in prison. No free market would do that. Because it doesn't serve anyone unless it's built around an arbitrary, centrally planned solution that is built around the idea of preserving the power of people who are already in power. If someone were, if this were an actual free market, the free market would say, why are we locking these people up? This isn't benefiting us. We're being taxed to pay for this. The Federal Reserve is printing out endless bills to pay for this. And we're, and it's deriding the value of our currency that we use as a result to pay for all of this. This isn't helping anything. It's creating a black market that creates an incentivization of criminal activity. It gives cartels a way to profit. It it creates this this entire system that makes our streets less safe and drives a rift between the community and the police. And it, it, it criminalizes and victimizes entire swaths of humanity, the people that live in our communities and neighborhoods. This isn't a good system. This certainly doesn't profit me. 
why are we doing this? We would never do this. So no, that's not a free market. That is a corporatist market that is built around a bad government idea that Democrats and Republicans introduced. Because again, Democrats and Republicans have been in exclusive control of government at, every, at virtually every lever for the last 150 plus years. And libertarians have common sense solutions to end those bad ideas that have led to the harmful, abusive, and inequitable outcomes that they've introduced. One place I want to I want to pick on this a little bit is is mm-hmm. and I I don't know you know sort of these days how the precedent how how past precedent has like you know effed with the the first the first article of the Constitution mm-hmm. but you know in many ways I think a lot of a lot of the problems that we see are state level or even local level problems. Now, of course, you know, the federal government has been used in the past to, you know, as a hammer, for example, in enforcing segregation, which was a national law or, you know, or, or otherwise trying to trying to fight Jim Crow at times. What I'm wondering is, where do you see, you know, should you be should you enter the Oval Office? Where do you see your ability as let's just say, you know, you get Congress working with you too, right? So it's not just the presidency. But um, where do you see the ability of the federal government to get involved in a number of these laws that you even said were state level, such as, um, you know, such as uh, the the prison quotas? Mm-hmm. I don't know if qualified immunity is federal or not, but certainly the budgets for different police departments and 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 such. Where does the federal government play a role? And where are you limited in your ability to influence this? Well, so one of the biggest things uh, right now, when you look at the federal government's role with the states, the federal government has stopped being an overseer, has largely stopped being an overseer to make sure that the states aren't violating our constitutionally affirmed rights. And instead, they're basically just the tip of the slush fund that makes sure that all the states are getting as much uh, crony uh, fun, you know, crony money for for their their cronies to contract different things as possible and to preserve their own power to make sure that their preferred people get reelected. Um, so it's it's very much a system of patronage. Patronage. It is a kleptocracy. Uh, it is a system based on theft for the purpose of furthering of theft uh, for no other real purpose than to preserve the power, wealth, and influence of those who are uh, in those positions currently. And so, what we need to look at what the actual role of the federal government was. The role of the federal government was to uh, to define and to uh, affirm the uh, what they determined to be the natural rights of the people, not just citizens, but any of the people within the jurisdiction of the United States, then to lay out some very, very limited powers that the federal government was to have to say, and then, and then to say in the 10th Amendment that anything else was left to the states with the idea that the, affirmed, the constitutionally affirmed rights of the people is, has primacy over all of that. So yes, a state can introduce some further law, but if it violates the constitutional rights of the people, then it should be struck down. And the problem is, up until now, the words on that piece of paper have largely been ignored. And they are still being ignored. And they are being increasingly ignored and actually uh, pretended to mean the opposite. And so, for example, we're talking about the state laws with the quotas of, of, of prisons. That can easily be challenged as a violation of the rights of the people there. Because the only way you can ensure that a certain number of people are in prison is to be imprisoning people who don't belong in prison because no one can predict how many people right. are going to be in prison naturally. 
right? right? And so, for example, the way you deal with that, the way we would deal with that at the federal level, and, and the beauty of the fact that Congress has abdicated their responsibilities through the creation of all of these executive agencies that basically legislate through regulation under the authority of, of Congress having abdicated their responsibility there, is that now someone coming in to the White House, if they wish, which is what Joe would do, uh, can simply use her pen to undo those regulations and order the people in those agencies to undo those regulations. Um, so there's a tremendous amount of power, which was not intended to be in the White House, but it's there. And, uh, and so, for example, descheduling the drugs, ending the war on drugs, refusing to, you know, re- removing the people in the DEA and refusing to rehire, declining to enforce drug laws, uh, and simply doing that puts the pressure and the onus now on the states. Now, mm-hmm. what are you going to do? You've got these quotas. There are no federal laws that you can be quote, citing here. Are you going to now create laws that people don't want in order to uh, enforce this? And unlike the federal government, you can't just print out money to pay for it. Are you going to raise everyone's taxes to make sure that there are enough people in prison to make sure that your contracts with for-profit stock-traded companies, publicly traded companies, continues to make all the, the graft and money on the backs of slave labor? So the pressure's there. And, and especially right now in this environment where people are, are, are getting sick of government, not just the people with, the, with the, you know, the, the police brutality, but the people on the other side with the, with the lockdowns. Everyone right now is at least a little bit sick of government. And so if someone is in the White House dismantling that system that has led to these massive inequities and abuses and harms that we have seen and is engaging actively in harm reduction and putting the onus on the state to say, yeah, are you coming along with us or are you going to rewrite what we've undone so that you can preserve your own power on the backs of your own people. Now suddenly, it's it, it becomes a, a a moral tale between whether these people want to actually do the right thing or not, and uh, that's tremendous pressure that gets put on them. And if they continue to do things that violate the rights of the American people, that's when the Department of Justice should be stepping in. And under a Jorgensen Cohen administration, that's exactly what they'd be doing. So you kind of uh, actually affected our transition for us into the next thing you want to talk about, which okay. is the pandemic um, and the lockdowns. Okay. And it's mm-hmm. I mean, part of why now is such a crazy time is not not just because of the pandemic, not just because of the murder of Floyd and the fallout from it, but the two mm-hmm. happening at the same time and the overlap of the need to protest to show dissatisfaction with the government. And of course, that being a breeding ground for a virus. Right. So. You know, I live in Los Angeles and we're now the state's going into uh, they're calling it stage three. So they're opening up bars next week and they're opening up a lot of other things. We just hit the highest single day uh, record of new covid cases since the beginning Mm -hmm. of the pandemic. So clearly quarantine helps. There is a careful balance to strike between what's required and, you know, whether or not that is an abuse of state power. And I, I think a lot of people have that front first and foremost on their mind, right? Because you had protests about wearing masks and that was abuse. Oh, of course. Yes. Yep. So what what is the best approach to protecting in- individuals' rights while also ensuring individuals' negative rights to not contract COVID, right? Because all of our actions right now have an outsized effect on other people's health as well. Yeah, we're externalizing to others. This is a perfect example of what Republicans and Democrats often do. They create a problem. So for example, they'll walk up to a house and they'll start setting it on fire and then they will show up with a, with a fire hose and, uh, and, and take it down <laughs> They'll, 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 you know, they'll, they'll, they'll put out the fire. And in the course of putting out the fire, they do all sorts of damage to the property because they had to, to put out the fire. And they go, Hey, listen, if it wasn't for me, this fire wouldn't have been put out. And what are you doing complaining about all the water damage? Well, if they hadn't started the fire, we wouldn't have had the problem. 
maybe the arson should stop. So a perfect example of this with COVID-19, we knew as recently as the beginning of January that there was something similar to SARS mm-hmm. that was probably spreading asymptomatically, which means that the ability for it to spread is exponentially higher because there's no effective way to contain it, or at least to contain it in terms of of on a massive scale. You can contain it by trying to slow the spread as much as possible and try to try to you know cut people off as soon as you know that they have it. But it's not like SARS where you can just say, hey, listen, you can't leave this barrier unless you don't have a fever. It doesn't work the same way. And so what we had was uh, what we what we know is, is that initially when people first started trickling into doctor's offices, including Dr. Helen Chu in uh, uh, University of Washington in Seattle and many other uh, hospitals around the country and said, hey, doc, listen, I'm not feeling too hot. And I just got back from Wuhan, China a couple of weeks ago. And I'm hearing about this coronavirus thing. And it sounds a lot like what I may be dealing with. Uh, Can you help me out? Those doctors knew that it was illegal for them to test for it because the CDC had a regulation in place. It's been around for quite a while that says that if you want to test for a novel virus, you have to get approval first. That application process takes months. So what did these doctors do? They said, "Okay, I've got this dumb regulation and I've got my Hippocratic oath. Thankfully." At least a few of them put their Hippocratic Oath over a federal regulation that told them not to test, contain, or treat a pandemic or, or, or a, a virus that could lead to a pandemic without months-long approval first. And they put their Hippocratic Oath first. They created test kits, which if you know how to, I don't know how to do it, but if you know how to do such a thing, it's apparently fairly easy. They made test kits and they uh, tested people and a few of them came back positive. And so they went to the CDC and said, hey, listen, permission instead of or for forgiveness instead of permission, we already did it. It's already here. We need to do something. Do you know what the federal government's initial response to being told that a virus that was already ravaging China and other parts of the country, do you know what their first response was? Destroy those results, tell no one, including the patients, and do not treat them. Do nothing. That was what the federal government said to being told that something with a doubling rate uh, of something like two days, something that could spread to every single person if left unchecked in a matter of a month or two, was tell no one. That was the federal government. Just so that I don't have to ask any more questions about about this scandal, any chance uh, you can we can bug you for a, for a citation afterward that we can add to the notes? Oh, absolutely. Awesome. Yeah, no, there's articles. There's multiple, multiple, multiple articles about this. I was, even as a, a libertarian who does not trust the government, when I first heard this, I thought there has to be more nuance to this. There is no more nuance to this. They told them, shut up, tell no one. All right, get back up in your soapbox. Go. Okay. So yeah, back on my soapbox. So in a incredible, brave act of civil disobedience that we don't know how many lives ultimately it saved, but it could be in the millions. Because if you think about what would have happened if we all got it inside of a month or two, our hospitals would look like Italy, but on a much worse scale. And in an incredible act of heroism, those doctors instead said, yeah, no, screw that. My Hippocratic Oath goes above that stupid regulation. They released it to the public. That's why we knew that there were five cases here. It's also why we were told there were only five cases here for like a month. They find they released that and it forced the hand of the CDC. That act of civil disobedience forced the hand of the CDC to say, okay, listen, from now on, you still have to get approval, but we will give you provisional approval so you can go ahead and start testing. And meanwhile, they're still restricting certain types of tests, including at-home tests, uh, any test that won't report to the government. Because in the government's mind, if they can't know, 
you can't know. And so, and we have many other problems. I mean, our healthcare system, we could spend a, a, quite a bit of time talking about that if we have time. But the bottom line is that in the worst of times, in the best of times, our healthcare system leads to high costs and, and, and often lack of access to quality care. And in these types of times, it can lead to massive shortages and the kind of epidemic we're seeing in this country. It was caused by the government telling the healthcare sector that they could not test us or treat us or contain us. I got sick in February and I now know that I didn't have it. I didn't antibody test and I didn't have it, but I got very sick in February. I went to a hospital or I went to a doctor's office and I tested negative for the flu. And I said, could, could this be that coronavirus thing? And they said, it could be, but there's no way to test for it because we're not allowed to. Hmm. I could have had it. They sent me home. That's why it spread the way it did. That is why the United States has the number of cases it does. That's why it's spreading poorly here. That's why the states then had to turn around and overcorrect by telling everyone to stay home because they had a virus that they didn't even know what they were dealing with. They didn't even know how serious it could be or could not be. So they told everyone, just stay home. Just stay home. We'll figure this out. And they told people who are one paycheck away from destitution, we're going to get some money to you at some point, but you got to stay home. And so even here in Myrtle Beach, a fairly affluent part of Myrtle Beach, I saw cars around the block at churches and food banks, so, you know, middle-class cars with middle-class people in them who were a couple paychecks away. They discovered in this crisis just how close they were to total destitution because of the system we have. And so going back to this, but you'll notice something. They told us, uh, don't go to the beach, don't go to the park. Uh, if you go outside, wear a mask. Actually, first they said, don't wear a mask. Then they said, do wear a mask. Uh, but they also said something interesting. Don't go to the furniture store where there will be like six other people there because that's dangerous. Uh, don't get your hair cut um, where there might be you know, eight other people there because that's dangerous. Don't go to the gym where there's often no one there uh, because that's dangerous. Don't go to this and that because that's dangerous. Go to Walmart, go to Costco, go to Target, go to buy stuff on Amazon, go to all the biggest companies on this planet and crowd yourselves into buildings together because that's safe. The big businesses didn't suffer at all. And the ones that did, like the airlines, they got billion, trillions of dollars in bailouts on your dime while you got $1,200 and told, stay home until we tell you you can't leave. And if you leave before we tell you you can, we'll send the police to come well within six feet of you and put metal handcuffs on you and put you in the back of their car where other people have been as well. And where they're going to put you in a cage where you are almost certain to contract COVID. And the underlying message there is if you do not listen to us, we will infect you. That is the quote unquote government solution. We will make the pandemic happen as a result of not allowing the people who could stop it to stop it. And then we will use that as an excuse to, con to order your every step and the very second you break from what we tell you, we will make sure that you get it. I do not trust an organization that, tells, that conducts itself that way. And that is the organization that the Democrats and the Republicans have created for us. Real quick, and I, I by no means am I in favor of bailing out airlines. I I think it's a little ridiculous because it's not systemic in the way that banks were, and even we can, then we can have a conversation about 0809. Well, we but, could have a whole conversation about that too. But, <laughs> but yeah, but but I'm pretty sure the bailout wasn't trillions. It was it was 85 billion that was dedicated to um, airline airline bailouts, at least in the CARES Act. I I, 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 sh I should clarify trillions to not just airlines but big businesses in general. So between the Fed bailouts and the actual mm. the, that they that they gave the quantitative easing 
and in and giving into Wall Street and the bailouts, it was something like four trillion dollars. Well, we got twelve hundred bucks each. Um, it was it what between what the Federal Reserve printed out to hand off to Wall Street and what uh the what the Congress and 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 Trump passed to um to give directly to big businesses as part of the relief bill. That was the equivalent of being able to give every single American, not not every single taxpayer or every single householder, every single adult, every single American living in America, something like sixteen or seventeen thousand dollars. So, you know, the same people that tell us, and, I, and I'm not a fan of UBI, but the same people who tell us that UBI is unsustainable because of the inflationary effect of it, which is true, gave UBI to billionaires to make sure that their billionaire income wasn't harmed as a result of the pandemic that they allowed to go out of control. I actually want to, what I, what I want to do is, is kind of force you into a corner a little bit. Dear listeners, Spike, Spike said he was willing to roll with the gotchas. I'm not going to gotcha you, but I'm, <laughs> I'm going to give you a hypothetical just to just to see how you how you'd handle it um, or how your administration would handle it. Right. You know, let's let's because I think you this this like kind of biological arson that you described is something that I didn't even know about. But let's just say let's just say the government hadn't set the house on fire. So let's just say, you know, some you know, it's it's like a mad cow disease type of thing. We don't really know about it for a while and all this meat gets ground up. And, you know, thousands and thousands of people, well, maybe it's not mad cow because you can only get it from meat, but whatever. It's, it's, it's a. I understand some kind of easily spread disease that's very, very deadly. Yeah, exactly. That starts here. And through, through good intentions, we look up and we go, you know, I'm a little like Wuhan. We look up, we go, oh, crap. Ooh, this is bad. You know, the way Wuhan dealt with it and, and now, you know, China is back to its own form of totalitarian nightmare normal. But, you know, the way the way the Chinese dealt with it there was just like hard lockdown, boom, everyone stay inside, you know, don't do anything. We're going to spray everything down, just wait it out for 30 days and, and we've got it. And, you know, in the case in, in a case like that, where mm-hmm. where we look up and through good intentions, realize, OK, we've got a major problem on our hands. It's it's deadly. It's it's high or not, et cetera. You know, I, I would think that, you know, you're sitting there in the White House and I would think that you've got these competing, you know, you've got these competing impulses. And I, I'm, I'm guessing here. So just just trash everything. I don't. To say. I don't. OK, and this cool. Is a Go. Per- this is this is a perfect example of what we're talking about in Wuhan, China. The initial response to the doctor's warning that there was something similar to SARS that was spreading asymptomatically was to put them on trial for disinformation and throw them in jail. That is why it spread the way it did. If the market is allowed to respond to something happening, it will it will be dealt with in a far better way. I am not going to pretend that there will never be disease or that all pandemics will be stopped with the first few dozen people or anything like that. What I am telling you is that if there is not a centralized authoritarian monopoly on violence claiming authority of telling someone whether they can or cannot treat the public with a with any health concern, but especially a major health concern like a pandemic, this thing doesn't happen in the first place, not on this scale. Does it happen? Yes. Does it get contained? Can we adjust to it? Absolutely. At the local level, can cities say, hey, listen, right now, while this thing's going on right now, we need you to wear a mask. You can go do, do whatever you need to do. But right now, you need to wear a mask because we're trying to deal with this thing. Sure. But that is far different than what we ended up happening. And what and it's way different than what Wuhan ended up happening. Like you said, everyone had to stay inside. We don't know how many people died of starvation in their apartments right. because they literally put tapes, tape on people's doors so they couldn't open their doors. And they sprayed the walls with disinfectant. 
We don't know how many more people died because that is an, a, a nightmare authoritarian regime that will never be honest about the numbers. And I mean, we're not we're a lot closer to that than we want to admit, but we're not there. I will say that we're nowhere near there. We're, we're closer than we, a lot of us are comfortable admitting, but we're not, we're not quite there. And that happened as a result. Anytime you have someone who is in a position of power and influence telling others, do not do what your job is, even if it is to help your fellow man, things are going to be exponentially worse than they would be if you simply allowed the spontaneous nature of human action within the market to respond to the challenges that we face, including pandemics. Here's another perfect example. It's a much smaller one, but it's not small to the people it affects. It is illegal in most part of parts of the US to right now, even before these, before these lockdowns, to right now, take some sandwiches, go out to a park, find homeless people and feed them. That is illegal in almost all parts of the country. Because it's unsafe, Unless, right? Because it's unsafe. Yeah. It's not unsafe to starve to death in the park. It's unsafe to give someone a sandwich you just made. That's unsafe. You know what's not unsafe? When the health department shows up, takes all your sandwiches, pours bleach on them and dumps them in the dumpster where hopefully someone doesn't stumble upon them and, and eat them at late at night and not realize what it is. That's totally safe. You handing them that sandwich, not safe. Oh, if you invite them to your house and feed them, safe again. Back outside, unsafe. That is the arbitrary, harmful, crony-friendly nature of this government that the Democrats and Republicans have made. Not to help you, but to intentionally make it harder for you to help others and to be helped. Why? Because then you need them. And that is the entire purpose of this system. You need them and you need the for-profit cronies who have created their revolving door system of uh, corporate official to lobbyist to government official to corporate official, where they make endless millions and billions and trillions of your dollars that are stolen from you, not just through taxation, but through endless printing of Federal Reserve notes so that they don't even have to ask your permission first. And then they run up debts in your name that you have to pay off for decades. You, your children, your children's children with interest while simultaneously reducing the value of your currency because by inflating the monetary supply without adding any additional value, they are insta instantly over time reducing your value. That is why, you know, we say death and taxes are the only assured things in life. Add inflation to that. While the Federal Reserve exists, the cost of living will steadily go up. Maybe it's only 2%, maybe it's 5%, maybe it's 10%. The reason the cost of living is going up is because the amount of currency in circulation is going up without an increase of value of that currency, which causes the per note value to go down slowly and continuously over time. What an insidious, disgusting, and cynical way to rob the populace, to print out money in their name, and to force them to use that same currency so that it, contains, so that it, it keeps its value that it would never keep if they weren't holding a gun to our heads and forcing us to use it. I will, that is the system they've created, and it will not help us. It will only harm us. I will say, I, I, you've, you've definitely, you're definitely politician ready. You, you, you took us <laughs> totally seamlessly from from coronavirus to to the Fed needs to the go. Federal Reserve. Yeah, well done. <laughs> well, well, speaking of authoritarian governments, okay. Talking about China over the week, I think it was over the weekend, uh, China and India got into, I mean, not really a spat. I think something like 20 soldiers might have been killed on both sides. It's the first yeah. time that 
that there was actual violent conflict on the line of control. Yep. I think since 1975, but certainly since the war in 1962. S- several decades, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, conflict on that land border is a little bit difficult because it's really high up in the mountains. But clearly, China right. is a rising power. We have some competing interests with them on a geopolitical level in the Pacific Ocean. I think you can make the reasonable argument that, you know, violent threats have come to America from the Pacific Ocean before. And, you know, China has been pushing out and expanding its area denial capabilities in the South China Sea and so on and so forth. And we have been growing closer with India, but not that close because India is close to Iran and gets a lot of their weapons from Russia. So there's that kind of delicate bit of diplomacy there. But how Mm -hmm. should America respond to China generally? And then more specifically, what do you make of this flare up of violence on the border between India and China? Yeah, I mean, listen, if the Chinese government doesn't get contained soon, then at some point they'll become as aggressive as ours. The thing with uh, China and India is uh, that's been a longstanding thing up in the, like you said, up in the mountains. And, and my understanding is they actually, they were fighting with sticks up there. I, I, there's some kind of armistice where they're not allowed to shoot at each other or that'll signal war. Uh, but from what I saw, they, they, they supposedly they were fighting with sticks with nails on them and rocks. I mean, they were actually like going to these like gangland battles up there fighting each other with their fists and, and with, you know, implements, crude implements. And uh, obviously the tensions are very high. I personally think from the words that I've heard from the actual government officials, I think it was something that happened up there as a result of bad blood. And I think neither government uh, wants to really go to blows over it because their trade relations are so high that that two things. Their trade relations are very high. They're both, well, actually three things. Their trade relations are very high. They're both nuclear powers and they're right next to each other. And I think that, I think personally, I believe that that cooler heads are eventually going to prevail, even if it does heat up a little bit more uh, in, the, in the meantime. I do think cooler heads will prevail by the very nature that most of us don't want to die and would rather prosper instead. So I, I do think cooler heads will prevail there. Uh, as it comes to our relationship with the Chinese government, we have to look at the nature of why the Chinese government is where it is. And that starts right here. Crony uh, corporations here figured out that the best way to retain their power and influence was to create regulatory burdens through their their patronage system with their, their favored politicians in both parties to make sure that they never have to have major competition rise up and disrupt the market. And so they create a series of regulatory burdens that makes it really, really difficult for new companies to rise up and engage in what we call creative destruction, disrupting the market to the point where the big boys uh, end up you know, faltering and, and, and failing or at least losing their position uh, as the, the nature of the, the competitive nature of the market allows for new, uh, more innovative solutions and providers to, to rise up and, and to ultimately uh, give better, uh, increasingly better value to us, the consumer. And so they figured out that if they made an unrun around that with regulations that they would sell as being protections for our workers and our environment, that they would be able to get them passed because they can't say we want to pass these things so that you can never get ahead. Uh, instead, they say we want to pass these things to protect our environment because we're good corporate environmental and labor stewards of what we have. And so once those things pass and it reaches a point where they themselves can't afford them, they already knew that was going to happen. And so they've already developed relationships with dictatorial governments in foreign countries where they simply move their entire base of operations over there and use what we consider slave level sweatshop labor to provide those, those, to produce those goods and services and then ship them back here. Now, this creates a myriad of problems. Now, the biggest one that we talk about often is the economic problem here. People are losing their jobs to 
factories being offshored to other places. And because of the uh, the incredibly changing nature of labor, a lot of them are rendered unemployable except for you know menial labor. And they have households and families that can't be supported on menial labor. Uh, can't be supported on just you know working at Starbucks or something like that. And uh, and it also has the financial cost of the fact that an increasing number of people uh, that were gainfully employed now need financial assistance. They need to be on you know different programs to help them. They need to now take part of that social safety net, which is a you know a burden on the taxpayer, of course. Uh, but then we have other stuff that we don't talk about as often. There's the social cost of the fact that an increasing number of people. And by the way, I'm not avoiding your question. This will go back to what you were talking about. There is the social cost of the fact that an increasing number of people are not gainfully employed, are not in their minds productive and contributory, and instead are living as ward, effectively increasingly wards of the state. So there's a social impact there that's happening, the very fabric of our communities. Then there's the environmental impact. Because now instead of something being made here, where there was at least some environmental concern, uh, even if it's at the local or state level, now it's being produced over in countries that have absolutely no concern for the environment. And it's then shipped back here in giant tankers, which exponentially increases the carbon footprint of all of the goods and services that we buy. And then there's the what we're talking about. There is the foreign policy and political impact of increasingly empowering the most authoritarian dictatorial governments around the world and incentivizing their mistreatment of their own people, using them as chattel. The same way we use people as chattel here for prison labor, they use as chattel there for sweatshops to make stuff more cheaply for us than it could be made here because of the regulatory burdens that were put in place by politicians who were put in their positions by those very cronies who then moved all their jobs overseas. That is a system of patronage, patronage that is costing us countless immeasurable amounts of money, tens of trillions, maybe even hundreds of trillions over the decades. It's causing immeasurable environmental and social and financial and, and uh, economic harm. And it is propping up governments that promise to potentially be even worse and more brutal than our own has been with that same level of power. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It is a system, and the most ridiculous thing about it is that it was created, it was, we, it was sold to us as a protection of us when it has been exactly the opposite. 
One of the things that a Jorgensen Cohen administration would do when we first got in is unroll all of those overly burdensome protections and immediate harm reduction happens as a result of it. First of all, a lot of those jobs come back. And more importantly, a lot of those jobs spring up right from here with the small businesses, the mom and pops, the people in their garages and basements coming up with the solutions that they now can because they don't have to spend tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars in initial compliance costs that they do not have. And now they can make those disruptions. Now they can disrupt those big boys. Those jobs over there may not even come back here. They may die on the vine and be replaced right here with new ones from the disruptors in the market, completely disrupting uh, the big boys that are in place. Then we have the environmental harm reduction that will happen by more and more things being made here instead of being made clear on the other side of the world. Then we will have, of course, the social benefit that will come from the disruption leading to more and more people not needing to be on a social safety net and instead being prosperous, working here, coming up with their own solutions, being entrepreneurs, building and growing and creating prosperity and a legacy for their families and their communities. And then finally, those dictatorial governments overseas that have been built on developing countries, cronies, sending all their jobs there after they've destroyed all of their domestic competition, that will end. And the only way they will be able to continue to work in our globalized economy and to have good trade relations is to demonstrate that they are good brokers as well. And as we are also doing things like ending the wars, ending the war on terror, ending the blowback and the creation of terrorist organizations, ending the uh, intelligence uh, our intelligence community, destabilizing foreign countries and propping up cartels to do our bidding. We also encourage other countries to do the same so that we can show ourselves as good stewards, not just them, but us as well. All of this can be done simply by removing the barriers, the burdens, and the bad faith policies that have been implemented by Republicans and Democrats, Democrats for, countless, for countless decades. Okay, so if I'm, if I'm understanding you correctly... As it relates to China, it seems like you're saying that a big part of the, the the cause for why they're becoming so aggressive and the way they've become so powerful is because we've outsourced a lot of work to them and we've essentially benefited in the form of cheap products and services. We, we, we haven't benefited. Cronies have benefited. We get services that would be as cheap, could be just done just as cheaply here if those overly burdensome regulations were in place. Cronies benefit, government politicians benefit, we are harmed immeasurably. So what's, what's the solution then? Do we just stop trading with China? I, 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 no, that wasn't clear no, to me. No. Yeah, no, no. We just end the regulations that created that system in the first place. We get rid of the burdensome regulations. That, those jobs come back naturally here. Trade with China is not a bad thing. Trade with other countries is not a bad thing. Trade, countries and governments that trade goods and services do not trade bombs and bullets. And so that is a good thing. And I think that's actually a Bernie Sanders quote. Uh, if it's someone else, I apologize. But it is good for us to have trade. But that trade needs to be as a result of actual market demand and need, not as a result of some artificial demand that has been created by bad policies with the explicit intent of causing that to happen. This was by design. They wanted the slave labor to happen over there so that they would be able to stop all of their domestic competition here. And of course, now they're reaping the whirlwind. Now they have their companies over there stealing their patents and, and everything else. I mean, it's, it certainly hasn't been all, uh, uh, all uh, sunshine and rainbows for them. And it serves them right because that's, that's the system they created. 
But no, we get rid of those burdensome regulations. And then, yeah, no, we, we definitely should still have trade, but there will be trade that will happen in, with an equilibrium of supply and demand as opposed to this, this, this massive outsourcing to get away from our domestic uh, labor and, 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 and burden market, uh, overly burdened regulatory uh, market that makes it where no one can really, an increasingly, a, a decreasing number of people are able to actually compete here. And by simply removing that, that undoes most of the damage. And we don't have to stop trade with China or anything else. We simply just rebalance the relationship in favor of the consumer and the worker and away from the powerful cronies and their favorite politicians. I still want to pick on the foreign policy question itself. So I, you know, I happen to think that regardless of the strength of our trade relationship with China, I, actually, I, I, I developed a strong opinion about China working for a couple of professors at MIT about this for a while. And, and I think they've, I happen to think they have a more, like a more ingrained need to essentially in, in, like enforce what they see as their zone of control or, or their, their buffer zone. And you know, so so they're even like, let's say we have a great trade relationship with them. Everything's going great. They're still kind of rubbing up against Vietnam, the Philippines, Malaysia. Um, you know, obviously there's, oh my God, Taiwan. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and now bumping heads a little bit with India. I don't think China is necessarily a massive expansionist power. However, I, I you know, would make the case that they are, they've demonstrated that they're trying to take control of trade lanes in the South China Sea, potentially mm -hmm. the Straits of Malacca, and, yep. and have the ability to deny trade from other countries, including us, to, to other folks, you know, at their whim. I know that the, you know, the libertarians have, you know, ten, tend to like strongly oppose, um, you know, aggressive or pre, uh, preemptive military use by the United States. Um, how would a Jorgensen Cohen administration deal with, you know, respond to, uh, you know, China's continued work in the South China Sea to to, you know, bumper like like go bump around Philippine fishing boats and build, you know, build islands as bases and try to claim that those are real islands and their property and therefore it's their sea, et cetera, mm -hmm. in order to, you know, in, in again, from my mind, in order to prevent a future in which the Chinese state has created a, you know, a toll, you know, a toll highway through the right to, to keep them to keep them from treating uh, the Southeast Asia the way that we treat most of the world. No, I, I, I agree. It's definitely a problem. And if you look at the root cause, it's that they can afford to do so. And again, I believe that my I, I believe that what I laid out that the Jorgensen Cohen administration would do at the regulatory level here, which would unravel most of their uh, relationship that they have with our cronies would make it a lot harder for them to be able to afford to do that in the first place. And it would change their footing in terms of how they have to interact with others in order to still be seen as a good trade partner and diplomatic partner. With that said, when I hear of what China is doing in the Philippines, and I recognize that I sitting in the White House with Joe Jorgensen have far less control of that than we have of our continued genocide campaign in Yemen, for example, or the one we had in Libya, or the one that we have undertaken in Afghanistan, where we have gone and, and in fact, we don't talk about Yemen much. And I'm not changing the subject. I'm just re repositioning for context. And I am going to go back to what you're saying. Okay. Because, but, but no, no here's, but here's the point. When I hear you talking about what China is threatening with Taiwan, 
I keep going back and thinking about what our government is doing with it sponsoring a Saudi campaign against the civilian infrastructure of Yemen on behalf of Al-Qaeda. And I think, okay, wait a second, maybe we need to take the, uh, the, the beam out of our own eye before we start telling others to take the speck out of theirs. I think a great way to show governments how things should be done from a human rights standpoint is to stop violating the human rights of billions of people around the world through our government actions. Then and after then, we were able to say, hey, listen, look, how, look what we've done. Look at the harm we have ended and the healing that we have allowed to begin. It is very difficult for us to tell, for example, China to be kinder to Taiwan while we engage in genocide and destabilization and bombing and invasions and terminations and executions around the world and engaging in such a war of terror in entire sections of the world that most a large number of Arab children grow up fearing daylight because they know that's when the bombers are most likely to be able to hit targets. I think that we have a very uniquely American privileged position in talking about these subjects because we are so inoculated to the immeasurable harm that is being done by our own governments and instead have been taught to focus on the aggressive China who wants to exert themselves in the South China Sea, which is the equivalent of our Gulf of Mexico, that we are also trying to exert over that same South China Sea that is thousands of miles away from us and on their shores. We have a very interesting mindset of how we think about our relation to others, what we consider to be bullying from them and normal relations from us. And what I am saying is that, yes, China, the way that the increasing attitude they have that is increasingly reminiscent of our own, is a problem. And that will be dealt with by, again, removing that uh, uh, that crony relationship that is keeping them flush with cash and able to afford to do these things. We also need to be stopping our own similar actions that are happening around the world. And so it's, those are things that can be done at the same time. And if we are leading the world, because right now we are leading the world, we're leading the world in showing that people should treat poorer countries like chessboard pieces and, and, and that, you know, that we can simply exert ourselves as whenever we see fit for political purposes. If we stop that, now we can be leaders in the world of doing things a different way, in cooperation and in friendly competition as opposed to war and proxy war. And I'll say, I mean, I, I will pivot every time someone asks me about another country's actions, I'll say, how do they compare to our own? And then based on that, what, what can we do to demonstrate that that isn't necessary by not doing it ourselves? So I, I will always go back to that because uh, what we are doing, what, and I shouldn't even say what we, because we're robbed to pay for it and we have no consent. We were never asked. The U.S. government is doing in Yemen, destroying systematically their infrastructure and engaging in a genocide specifically against the civilian population for no other purpose than to sp supposedly hurt the Iranian relationship with Yemen for the benefit of the House of Saud and Al-Qaeda is far worse than anything that I have heard China do or threaten to do in northern India or in Taiwan. So we've been abroad a little bit now. I want to bring it back to the domestic scene while we have a couple of minutes left. And I'm going to ask sure. you a question that 
I'm sure third party candidates get asked every four years and, you know, uh, maybe are fed up with a little bit, but mm-hmm. I feel obligated to ask you anyways. Um, we are in a two party system and, you know, there, there are clearly par- problems with that. Do you think that the libertarian vote will tend to pull votes from one candidate or an- another this year? And the reason I ask and the reason I think it may be somewhat more important this year is just because of everything that's going on. And I believe, to your point, the failures that we've seen in the last several months due to poor leadership at the federal level. So mm-hmm. who are you going to take votes from? Everyone. We're going to turn every state into a swing state. And then once we get that 15% and end up on the debate stage, we will be the clear winners. It will be a matter of asking one of the other people to drop out so they don't take votes from us, which we would never do, but others can start doing on our behalf once we're getting close enough. Uh, So the bottom line is this. The Republicans and Democrats have had exclusive control of this country for over 150 years. They have brought us what we have. They engage in some interesting narratives and, uh, uh, you know, do a lot of Uh, rhetoric to their respective bases to create this seeming divide between them to distract from the fact that when you look at the final outcome of whoever is in office, we get the same thing, more war, more tax, more spending, more control of our lives, more people in jail for victimless crimes, more people being harmed in their communities, more systemic racism, more institutional bigotry against marginalized people, more imposition of government and crony authority around the world, more brutalization of those with the least for no other reason than to benefit those with the most. And it doesn't matter which one you vote for. The reason that the only thing that they will publicly agree on is that third parties should never be listened to and must be stopped at all cost is because they know that all they have done is build a gravy train for themselves where they have us at each other's throats, pretending that if one side wins, then we win. When the reality is they're all one side. I call them the Republicrats because the reality is there's so little daylight between actual outcomes that it's at this point absurd to continue pretending that there's enough of a difference to give one side another chance. People ask me how I can justify saying that a third party isn't a wasted vote. I would argue that a wasted vote is a vote for the very people who got us here, namely in this case, Joe Biden, who has co-signed, co-authored, and voted for every terrible law that is responsible for what we have now, and Donald Trump, who has actively cheerleaded it for decades and has now been in charge of it and done a terrible job in charge of it for three years now, and who has you know, used, I mean, he was one of those cronies, kicking widows out of their houses so he could build casinos. These two are the very personifications of what the Democrats and the Republicans have imposed upon us for decades, for over a century, for before our great-grandparents were alive. And I say it's a wasted vote to continue hoping that one of them will not be what they have been the entire time. I'm realizing, gosh, I'm, I, know you've got, I know you've got so many places to go, and we are down to about nine minutes left, which is... Which is- I, I, got, I got time for a question or two. All right. Um, well, I think, you know, I... Do we get into the Fed? Do we get into healthcare? Or do we go straight <laughs> to recreational plutonium? Dealer's choice, Mr. Cohen. Uh, let's do the healthcare one because right. that's the big one I get asked a lot. Okay, great. So, you know, healthcare in the United States, it's expensive. It's ineffective. You go to the UK, it seems somewhat more effective and about one third the cost per person. I've read the Milton Friedman case that, uh, or the case that Milton Friedman makes that Medicare and Medicaid are, were the beginning of the end of good, cheap healthcare in the United States. 
take us away. Yeah, so it actually started before that, with all due respect. Uh, oh, FDR and the, and the tax credits? Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, actually, the wage caps. Uh, um, yeah. Because we're told yeah, government no. cares about our wages. They cared so much that they tried to tell companies that they couldn't pay us more than a certain amount. So, But let's, let's, get bet, let's get to what we agree on here. Our healthcare system is an absolute mess. I have talked to countless people who they have debts that they don't know if they'll ever be able to pay off because they had a bad health scare. And thankfully, they survived, and now they're stuck with that debt. And if they had died, their survivors would have been stuck with that debt. They are at, we are spending, if you factor in what the government spends and what we are spending out of pocket, per patient, we spend something like three times the average that the, you said it, about a third of the cost. We spend about three times the average that developing nations are paying for healthcare. And if you take out what we're paying out of pocket and just look at what the government is spending, the, the federal and state governments are spending more on healthcare per patient than all but like a handful of countries. So this is not a free market system, regardless of what the, the, uh, the, the Republicans try to tell you. This is not a free market system. This, or I guess the Democrats say the same. This is not a free market. This is a government system that is designed to uh, extract massive amounts of wealth from those with the least and give to those with the most. It is a system of kleptocracy and patronism and patronization. So we can go a lot of ways with this. Uh, well, before we start with the history, here's another example of, of problems with our healthcare system. Right now, uh, we have venture capital companies that are going in and buying pharmaceutical companies for no other reason than to get their patents. They gut the research and development part uh, team. They gut the uh, marketing department. They gut everything. They hold on to the patents and the distribution and manufacturing. And they jack up the pricing 10, 20, 30 fold on drugs that have been around since before our parents were alive, like epinephrine and uh, for EpiPens and, uh, and, and insulin and, and many other drugs like that. Sounds like we need more government regulation, Spike. Nope. Sounds like we need to end the patent system that allows for them to squat on a patent. Why are they allowed to squat on something that was designed so long ago that at this point it's public knowledge? So that's a perfect example. Government allows that. Why? To make money for their cronies and then to tell us that they need more regulations. You know, the regulations that are written by those self-same cronies. We need to get them out of allowing this type of stuff to happen. Going back to that, why healthcare is as expensive as, as it is with as little access as it is. Prior to World War II, the cost of healthcare went up and down with the overall cost of living. It was just an equilibrium that was related to the overall cost of, of you know, su supply and demand in the market. With World War II, the federal government became basically the employer of almost everyone. Whether they were in the military or working on the war effort at home, the government employed almost everyone. FDR, in an attempt to control cost, threatened wage caps if employers didn't start reducing their, the, the wages or controlling the wages they were charging people. Because the market was tight. Everyone was working for someone. And so employers were offering more and more to get the best workers so that they could do the best output. And so the way that these employers got around these threatened wage caps was to start offering benefits. That was a new thing. And one of those benefits was health insurance, comprehensive health insurance. So up until then, health insurance was similar to car insurance. You paid, a, you know, you paid some kind of a relatively small amount, a nuisance fee. Uh, and if you had a major health cat catastrophe, they would pay for it. Otherwise, if you needed to go to a doctor, you went to a doctor, you paid the doctor, and the doctors had to keep their prices at an equilibrium with the knowledge that if they rose them up too high, no one could come. 
And that's how the market works. And so instead, now the payments were being made by third-party insurance companies because the comprehensive insurance paid for all your stuff. Imagine if your car insurance paid for your windshield wipers to be replaced and for you to get gas and for you to change your tires and for you to get a front end alignment. Imagine how much your car insurance would cost and how much those prices would go up because they're no longer having to barter directly with you, but are instead paying some large faceless, uh, getting their payment from some large faceless company instead. Comprehensive coverage is not a market-derived system. It came to get around the government, and that's why it has led to the increases. And the increases were so bad that by the 1960s, as you said, they introduced Medicaid and Medicare, which is basically single-payer healthcare for the elderly and the poor. Well, who's against that? Elderly and the poor certainly should have healthcare. What they also did was they added massive red tape and regulations, supposedly to reduce costs. Instead, according to every single think tank, both progressive and conservative think tanks, the regulations that have been put in place, regulatory burdens and compliance costs. And this statistic is used by people who are pushing for single payer coverage, Medicare for all, national health care. We all agree on this. The burdens that are being placed by Medicare, Medicaid and insurance companies, which at this point are an extension of the government because they wouldn't exist without them, are contributing to as much as 75% of the cost of healthcare. That one thing alone. That's before we get into the cronies going in and jacking up the prices of healthcare. That's before we get into certificate of need laws where hospitals and providers have to basically beg municipalities under federal law for them to be able to build a new hospital or put in a new MRI machine, which artificially reduces supply and naturally increases the cost as a result of that artificially reduced supply. All of these things contribute to massive increases in the cost of healthcare and reductions in access to the cost of healthcare in the best of times. In times such as these, it leads to us all having to stay home because they don't have enough beds. It is a major problem and is not going to be made worse by the same Republicans and Democrats who got us here with the same cronies who wrote those regulations, writing new ones and promising this time they won't self-deal from them. We need to allow the same way that we have. Here's an interesting story. When the Soviet Union ended, a lot of people panicked because they said, how are we going to get food? And when people said, well, you can get food from the market, people open stores and, and restaurants, they were horrified. They said food is way too important for that to be provided by the free market. It'll never work. We need food every day or we'll die. It has to be provided by government in a fair and equitable way. We have similarly been conditioned with the idea that the free market could never provide healthcare because it's simply too necessary. And yet we see what government solutions look like. They look like high costs. They look like burdens to access and care. They look like billionaires becoming mega billionaires on the backs of ridiculous patent protections that should not be in place. And we need to return it to a system whereby if doctors want people in their seats in the lobby, their costs need to be low enough for people to afford it. Recreational plutonium. We're short on time, so I'm just getting to the point. It was on your- yeah, So yeah, yeah. If, if, you, if, you, if you Google me, you're going to see a lot of funny satirical stuff yeah. that I've done in the past in concert with uh, a friend of mine, Vermin Supreme. Yeah. Uh, and satire is a very fun way to reach people who are so disgusted by politics that they don't want to hear anything from a politician. And if you listen to the idea, the ideas and the reasons behind why they are so disgusted that they don't vote, they don't want to hear from politicians, they're completely divorced from uh, politics in general. It's because they think the government is out to get them. All the stuff I've been saying on this entire show, government's out to get them. It's all just a bunch of cronies. The politicians are lying. Can't trust anything they say. These are 
highly libertarian reasons for them to not be involved in politics. And yet the problem is we can't reach them with our libertarian solutions because they don't want to hear anything from anyone. They're completely disabused of the idea that any of us have anything worthwhile to say. But if you entertain them and you get their attention, and instead of trying to pander to them or lie to them, or what they would perceive to be pandering and lying, instead you use humor to reach them. Now you've got their attention, their cognitive defenses are down, they're interested in what you have to say. They hear that there's an underlying political message, but for now, they just want to hear what you have to say. They're having a fun time. And over time, as you have de- de- demonstrated yourself as someone who actually cares about them and can be trusted and is someone fun and engaging to listen and talk to, now they want to know more. What is that underlying political message? What is it that you're saying? And then that's when you can hit them with the message. With that said, the vast majority of my campaigning, even during my time with Vermin, has always been serious. And of course, in the general election, my campaigning alongside with Joe Jorgensen, our campaign for president, vice president, is a serious campaign. I will not leave any chips on the table. And if there are people that can be reached with a humorous reach and a humorous style of messaging and other people who can be reached with a more traditional style of messaging and other people who can be reached with an empathetic and engaging and dynamic style of messaging, I'm not going to leave a single chip on the table. By the time I am done with this, everyone will have heard that we care about them, that we are listening to them, that we understand and agree with their concerns and their fears and their hopes and their dreams, and that we have common sense libertarian solutions to the problems that have been imposed upon them and made worse by over a century of bad policies from Democrats and Republicans. And just to add to that, having done my research, uh, listened to Spike on many a show, including his own Muddied Waters, Spike has been taking this. I, I, even though I'm the one that threw out recreational people, I, <laughs> I, 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 I at least have to, in, in, by way of apology, say I know that Spike's been taking this seriously for a long, Thank you. long time. Um, we have, uh, we at Reconsider soon will also have the pleasure of speaking with Spike's running mate, Joe Jorgensen, nice. who is running for president of the United States. Spike Cohen running for vice president of the United States with a libertarian ticket. We will be in our show notes, linking, of course, campaign, podcast, Twitter, Facebook, mm-hmm. Wikipedia. Spike, this is your, this is your chance uh, before you've got to boogie on to your next, your next appointment. You know, we, we've got an audience of, we've got an audience of folks that like to think differently about the world and the issues. We've got an audience mm-hmm. of folks who pride themselves on not falling for partisan wedging tactics or pandering or BS. Um, what's your parting message to them? Well, first of all, be sure to listen to the episode with, with, uh, with Dr. Jorgensen when she comes on. She is an absolutely brilliant, accomplished, self-made woman, a senior lecturer, someone who can even better than me articulate the problems that we are facing, the reasons that we're facing them, and the solutions, the common sense libertarian solutions that we have to solve those problems. So be sure definitely uh, to tune into that. Uh, I just want to say thank you for your time and for the opportunity to share our message. Joe Jorgensen and I are working on a future where the wars are ended, the troops are home, the suicide and the PTSD, not to mention the immeasurable harm overseas has ended, where the war on drugs has ended, the people are set free, their lives no longer ruined by a a, a mark on their record for engaging in victimless uh, commerce, where the streets are safer because we have taken the ability to sell drugs out of the hands of the criminal element and put it in the hands of the market where it belongs. And we end uh, ending police brutality and systemic racism so that we can heal the divides that have existed since before this country was even founded. And so that the, the, the growing rift 
between the public and the police who are sworn to protect them are finally being healed and those bridges being those divides being bridged uh, a world in which our healthcare decisions are taken out of the hands of the, the politicians and the cronies and the bureaucrats and put in the hands of us and our providers where it belongs a world where our education decisions for our children are taken out of the hands of those same politicians and bureaucrats and cronies and put in the hands of us and our and the teachers for the future of our children a a, time, a a world in which the war on the border ends and the people are set free from those camps and allowed to engage freely with people who wish to associate with them, reopening America to the trade and migration that the founders intended. A world in which we are safer and happier and healthier and have a freer and more hopeful future for us and our children and our communities. Joe Jorgensen and I fight for that every day. And with your help and your support and your vote in November, we will do just that in the White House. And so I invite you to join us at JoeJ2020.com, J-O-J-2020.com. And uh, yes, follow us on our social media. Uh, Go to JoeJ2020.com. If you want to fill out our volunteer form and join our team, we'd love to have you. If you are able to contribute, we would greatly appreciate any contribution you can make. Press the donate button. We would greatly appreciate that. And we appreciate your support and uh, listening to us. And uh, just thank you for your time. We really appreciate it. And with that, dear listeners, we'll sign off. Spike Cohen, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Thank you. Folks, check out the show notes. Check out uh, Joe Jorgensen and Spike Cohen's campaign. And we'll see you next time. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.